In the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. First of all, let me say how good it is to see you all. I don't remember a time I've been going away for two whole weeks in a row. I mean, this doesn't happen, so good to be back and good to see you. A few years ago, I received a letter in the mail. Um, it was uh, in the, self- or the uh, return address. It was from a Father O'Brien, University of Notre Dame, South Bend, Indiana. I was so excited to receive this letter. I didn't know who this fellow was, but, you know, a prestigious university and whatnot. I didn't even catch the unique spelling or the misspelling, as it was. Didn't seem to notice that it had been typed on an ordinary typewriter either. I was just thrilled to get it, so I, I quickly ripped it open. The first paragraph explained that Father O'Brien led a temperance ministry at the university, trying to help uh, you know, guide young people away from the harmful effects of, of beverage alcohol. The next, uh, the next paragraph then explained that, that uh, Father O'Brien's main um, kind of tool for success was this fellow Clarence Brown. It seems that Clarence Brown was quite the lush, the... Um, the uh, perpetual alcoholic, um, and that Clarence Brown would be brought in by Father O'Brien and he would sit him on stage um, while Father O'Brien was giving his talk. And Clarence would get drunker and drunker throughout the course of the evening and would slobber all over himself and make an unseemly mess. And Father O'Brien would say, see, this is what you'll become if you continue down this road. Well, I thought, like you, like I was aghast that somebody would do this. You know how, I mean, sure, the fellow is probably an alcoholic, needs help, but doesn't need to be publicly ridiculed. It, the letter went on. The final paragraph said that, unfortunately, Clarence Brown had passed away due to liver failure. And that the, um, the future of the ministry was at stake. Fortunately, a mutual friend had given him my name, and he wondered if I might be available to take Clarence's position. (laughs) I flipped that letter back over, looked at the beginning of it, and saw that it was misspelled and realized that one of my friends had sent this to me as a practical joke. And you know, to this day, I still don't know who sent that. (laughs) It was before I knew any of you, so you're off the hook this time. I think it was my friend Bonnie Rouse. She was always a practical joker, always doing things like this. Thought maybe it was her. wasn't sure. Went through my friends. Nobody ever owned up to it. But it was a good joke. It, it was funny. It was funny because it was ironic, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I thought about how so sometimes jokes aren't funny. Sometimes, you know, they come to us and they're not intended to be ironic or anything. They're, they're intended under the cover of humor to inflict pain. But sometimes people tell jokes that aren't really a joke. You know, oh, I was only kidding. I was only joking. I want to let you in on a little secret. You, when you, you remember when you were a, a small child and, and you, you'd come in crying to your mother or to your father about, about what your brother or sister said or what the neighbor down the street had said when you were playing ball and your mother might have said to you something like this. She said, you tell them that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Your mother might have been a great existentialist, but she was wrong. You know that, right? She was dead wrong. She could not have been more wrong. In fact, sticks sticks and stones can break your bones, and they will heal rather quickly compared to the damage that words can do. 
uh, in Frederick Buchner's novel, The Son of Laughter, the, the character Rachel says to her son Jacob, she says, a word can never be unspoken once it has been spoken. Do you understand what I mean? This is what I mean. If you speak a word with the strength of your heart in it, you could never get that word out of the ears of the one you speak it to and back into your mouth again. Once a word goes forth, it makes things happen for better or for worse. Nothing you do will ever make those things unhappen, even though you live for a thousand years. We know this, don't we? We learn this early. We learn this lesson early that our words can bring great delight or they can inflict great harm. And if we work hard enough at it, we can become quite crafty in the use of our words. We learn that words are powerful. Benjamin Franklin said, give me an army of 26 and I'll fight anyone in the world. The English alphabet. Adolf Hitler, give me a child when he's seven and he'll be mine forever. The right words spoken at the right time that you would control a person and you could change them and change the way they think in Hitler's version forever. And let me let you in on a little secret. It's why I don't much like the gospel lesson this morning. If ever you read a sentence that was a more un-Jesus-like sentence, I don't know where it would have been spoken. Coming from his lips... This woman comes desperate to help her daughter. She comes to him desperate to help her daughter, and he calls her a dog. Now, if that doesn't strike you with a little bit of offense, I don't know what would. The lectionary for this morning offered two options, a shorter reading and a longer reading. Um, oftentimes, you don't believe this, but I'll opt for the shorter reading, just for you know efficiency's sake. Um, But this one called for the longer reading. You cannot understand what's going on in just the shorter reading. The truncated version really skews the interpretation. Let me explain. In the first story, Jesus and his friends are eating a meal within eyeshot of these people called Pharisees. And they're eating this meal in such a way that offends the sensibilities of the Pharisees. Now, you perhaps remember the Pharisees. They're they're often viewed as the bad guys of the Bible, but they're really not the bad guys of the Bible. The Pharisees were people who were, who were religiously scrupulous, over-scrupulous even. They, they were so careful to make sure that they observed all of the Ten Commandments and beyond that, all of the moral imperatives in the Bible. They wanted to be the best of the best. They had this very, very um, I don't know what you say, uh, very careful following of Scripture, especially ethical guidelines. And one of the ways that they did sort of help them along is they would add certain rituals and behaviors that would, they would kind of, you know, reinforce this thing. One of the things they did was before they ate, they would ritually cleanse their hands. It was called baptizing their hands. And they would do this to remind themselves that in the world they came in contact with all sorts of profane things and profane people and that they would be cleansed so that when they took food in their body that they would be taking in this sort of cleanness instead of the unwholesomeness that's all around them. The logic made perfect sense. Jesus comes along and he intentionally does not baptize his hands before eating in eyeshot of the Pharisees so as to provoke their anger. They get upset at him for doing this. 
And they say to him, I thought you were a holy man. You don't seem very holy to me. Here you are eating with unbaptized hands. And Jesus explains, it's not what goes in your mouth that brings defilement. It's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unholy. It's what comes out of your mouth. That's the first story. You know, at the end of it, he says to to, to Peter, do you not see that whatever goes in the mouth enters the stomach and goes into the sewer? That's a very sanitized way of putting it, isn't it? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile. Slander. Blasphemi. Sort of sounds like blasphemy, doesn't it? which usually you think of sort of anything that kind of reduces the majesty of God. But blasphemy can also have sort of a secular meaning. Any sort of speech that's injurious to other people. If you speak in such a way that it injures or harms another person, that's a form of blasphemy. This is what Jesus is saying. It's what comes out of their mouth. The second story, then, is the story of the woman who comes along in desperate need. You heard it. Her daughter is demon-possessed. Not really sure what this means in terms of how she was reacting, but she's having some sort of of demonic oppression in her life. And she comes to Jesus desperate for help, and she, she comes to him and begs for his attention. Now, Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. Maybe you'll remember that the Canaanites were sort of known for sort of sexual licentiousness and a generally debauched sort of lifestyle, so they were viewed as unholy, unclean people. Um, scrupulous Israelites would stay as far from Canaanites as they possibly could. And Jesus left the place, Matthew says, where they went, went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman, Canaanite and a woman. In, in the ancient world, this would be, you know, sort of doubly unclean to keep away from a rabbi. He wouldn't speak to even his wife in public. And here comes this, this strange woman to him. And, and she, she came to him shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. Now listen. And Jesus did not answer a word. He ignored her. Said nothing. But she's unstoppable. She's unstoppable. Just like you would be if your daughter or your son were in danger and in need. She's unmovable. She just keeps right on. She keeps you know, crying out. She keeps begging for attention. She keeps trying to, to, to get him to answer. She gets, becomes much, you know, much more loud. And, and, and her friends eventually say, send her away. Come on. You've got to send this woman away. She's driving us crazy. Tell her to go away. Incidentally, the word crying out, the woman was crying out, Matthew says. The very same word is used in chapter 14, the previous chapter, when the disciples are out on the boat and the wind and the waves are tossing them and they're crying out to Jesus for help. You get the, the connection there, don't you? They want, they want compassion, they want understanding, but they have none for this woman. But she keeps going on. Jesus doesn't speak to her. He, he simply says out loud, he answers, not he answers her. He answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm only here for the Jews. He answers. As if he's speaking to his disciples, allowing her to overhear it, not speaking directly. And then the harsh words, she won't go away. He speaks again. He answers, it's not fair to take children's food and throw it to the dogs. I don't know about you. But, you know, I kind of grew up in, I grew up in the city, you know. Um, 
uh, we grew up where it was, um, if you said something like that to me, you know, one of two things are going to happen. Either it's fisticuffs, you know, we're just going to go at it. Um, or if I can't take you down with my hands, I'm going to take you down with my words. You say something that evil to me, I'm going to come right back at you with something just as, as, as torching. Say something like that, I would have a harsh, ooh. If somebody said this like that to you, what would you have said in response? But she doesn't, does she? Either it's out of her desperation or holiness, this woman does not respond, not like we probably would. Instead, she absorbs the insult. She's like Slim Shady in Nine Mile. Anybody? No? And she absorbs that insult. She just takes it. She she doesn't retort. Instead, what does she do? She says, yes, Lord, but even dogs get scraps. She takes it in. And here's the change. And then Matthew says, Jesus answered her. For the first time, he speaks directly to her. He answers her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be for you as you wish. And she goes and her child is healed. You know, I think what is happening in this passage is that Jesus is behaving exactly as his disciples expect him to behave. He is saying exactly what they want him to say. They miss the connection. They miss the connection between what he had just said to the Pharisees and what now he is doing in the face of this woman. Anna Carter Florence says this, It's always a shock and somewhat shaming when we hear our prejudice on the lips of someone else. There's a scene in the movie 42, Jackie Robinson movie. This little boy is down in Cincinnati with his dad going to watch um, the Reds play and and the Brooklyn Dodgers are in town. And this is the first time Jackie's been to Cincinnati. And and you hear all the the name calling going on. The little boy is there with his dad just to watch watch Pee Wee Reese play because Pee Wee Reese is from Kentucky and and the Brooklyn Dodgers are coming and and he wants to see Pee Wee Reese play. And so he's out there and... And his dad is yelling insults at Jackie Robinson. You know the words he's using. And the boy looks up at his dad and he doesn't understand what's going on. And all of a sudden the boy begins to say the same words that the dad is saying. And in the film, Pee Wee Reese, and he really does this in real life, he walked over at this time in Cincinnati and he puts his arm around Jackie. And all of a sudden nobody knew what to say. You know, here this star baseball player from Kentucky is showing fraternity and brotherhood with uh, with Jackie Robinson, and it kind of quiets the crowd. But when you see the little boy say the words that the dad was saying, oh, the ugliness. I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is I think he's showing us what it looks like when he mouths our prejudice, when he says what his disciples wanted him to say, when he says what all the other rabbis were saying at that time. And one of the real ironies isn't just that he says these words. The real irony is, who is the example in these stories of holiness? Who is the example of faithfulness? Who is the example that we should model? Well, it's the woman, isn't it? That she doesn't retreat insult for insult, injury for injury, tit for tat. She doesn't do what we would do. She absorbs the insult. She cares. She believes that God has something for someone even if they don't deserve it. And she's going to be persistent until she gets it. There's a story of this uh, woman who went to her priest. And she says to her priest in tears, she says, um, I, have a, I need to make confession. The truth is I've been a terrible gossip. 
I've, I've gossiped about everything. And not just gossip. I've, I've spoken harsh, cruel words to people and about people. And I've made an awful mess of my life. And her priest said, you're right. Confession is what you need. And, and he listened and he heard her confession. And then he assured her of God's forgiveness. And he said, but I want you to do something in an act of penance. I want you to go to the department store and buy a king-size down pillow. Go find the, a large king-size pillow filled with down feathers. I want you to get that. And I want you to go out to Pines Bluff at the edge of town. And I want you to climb that hill. And I want you to rip open that pillow. And I want you to just shake all those feathers out of there. And after you do that, I want you to come back and see me. The woman left the church thinking that was the oddest you know, demand of penance she had ever heard in her life. But she was so desperate for, for absolution that she did exactly what he did. She went to the store. She bought the pillow. She climbed the hill. She ripped open the pillow and she started shaking it. And those feathers just went everywhere. The wind caught it and blew them hither and yon. And she felt this, this real sense of release and, and relief and euphoria. And so the next day she goes back to the church, just like she had, the priest had told her. And she tells the priest, she says, I, I can't believe what you've done. It's been the most wonderful thing in the world. I, I went to the store and I bought the pillow, just like you said, and I climbed the hill, just like you told me. I ripped it open and, and I shook it out and it just felt so good. It was so cleansing. How did you know to do that? And he said to her, I'm so glad that you did it. I'm so glad it made you feel better. But I have still one more request. I want you to go, I want you to find every single feather, and I want you to put it back in the pillowcase. And she said, if I did it for the rest of my life, I could never find all those feathers and put them back in there. And he said, and neither can you retrieve all the words that you've spoken. That once they leave your mouth, they have great power for good or for harm. And the same is true for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.